Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Episode 80 of Suncast. We were approached by President Mohammed Nasheed from the Maldives, which is a small island country in the Indian Ocean. 300,000 people and the highest points about two meters above sea level. So they really wanted to make a statement that said, we are a small country, but we're committed to leading by example. And they had a mission at that time to be completely renewable energy run by 2025. That was how we kind of started working in island countries. This is Suncast. In every battle, there's a front line. On that front line are warriors whose courage and action shape the outcome of the battle. The world is currently engaged in a literal power struggle, a battle in global energy as it evolves from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Suncast is a conversation with solar warriors on the front lines, building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. We learn their secrets to personal and professional growth, market development, and industry insights. And now, join solar industry veteran, Latin America fanatic, and your host, Nico Johnson. Welcome, Solar Warriors. This is episode 80 of Suncast. I am your host, Nico Johnson. And as always, I am so glad that you're back again this week for another episode with me. As many of you longtime listeners know, Suncast started out as a podcast specifically focused on Latin America and solar. Now, while the show has evolved a bit since then to encompass lessons learned from global solar leaders, I do still enjoy returning to the topic of emerging markets. And one of the markets that gets too little love is the Caribbean. Today, I dig into the plight and possibility of island nations as they seek innovative ways to mitigate climate change and raise up a new generation of leaders. And if you missed the recent two-part series with Paul Garana, then you might consider going back to catch that one after you finish this one, as we go over a lot of the foundations and early pivot points that led to founding Folsom Labs and their now ubiquitous Helioscope solar modeling software. It has quickly become one of the most downloaded episodes on Suncast. I can't thank you enough for that. Thanks for all the feedback and the positive reviews. And you can look forward to another Tactical Tuesday coming up next Tuesday with Josh Weiner of Seppi Solar. Josh is also an expert on solar design and has formed an impressive resume of clients in the solar plus storage side of the business. So we dive down the rabbit hole with him discussing the ever-present lithium ion versus other alternatives of chemistry question for storage. If you are enjoying Suncast, would you please consider rating and reviewing the podcast in iTunes or sharing the episode with a friend? We're currently sitting about 43 ratings and reviews after 79 episodes, and I would love to see that number get up over 50. Thanks to those of you who've already left a review. I feel the love. Know that your positive review and subscription actually helps others find the show, which might be the highest form of praise that you could possibly offer Suncast. And for that, I sincerely thank you. All right, back to today's episode. Our guest is James Ellsmore. James has become one of the most followed voices in the discussion around what's happening with the Caribbean energy policy, and for good reason. His nonprofit, Solar Heads of State, seeks to demonstrate solar leadership by helping get solar on the presidential homes of every leader in the Caribbean. So, he's found himself literally in the courts of kings, as it were, and he has gleaned great insight, which he regularly shares on Twitter and in his new newsletter on the topic. Today, we dive into how he got on Forbes 30 Under 30, 
the value of personal branding, the story and successes of solar heads of state, the barriers to entry in the Caribbean that thwart so many developers along with where the opportunities lie, and how last year's COP23 conference is actually relevant to the Caribbean. If you enjoy this or any other episode of Suncast, probably the biggest compliment that you could pay me is to recommend the show to others. I thank you for that recommendation and your reviews on iTunes. This episode is brought to you in partnership with SoulRates.com, the fast and free online platform for providing your commercial customers with a credible lease financing proposal. If you have commercial projects over 100000 in value and you'd like to see how SoulRates can help your sales team get proposals out quick and easy and get financing fast and painless, head over to mysuncast.com forward slash S-O-L-R-A-T-E-S and request an invitation. Thanks again for setting aside this time in your day. Please enjoy this week's episode of Suncast with my friend, James Ellsmore. Today on Suncast, we've got a friend of mine, James Ellsmore, on the show. He's a social entrepreneur with expertise in sustainable innovation and entrepreneurship, particularly focused on rural, remote, and island regions. These last six years, he's been living, working, and traveling abroad, more than 40 countries, coordinating high-profile international renewable installations with government, private, and nonprofit sectors. He's on the 2017 Forbes 30 Under 30 list for energy, and he's been leading the efforts of the nonprofit Solar Head of State for the last five years. James, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Nico. Been looking forward to getting on a conversation formally with you. I mean, you and I talk a lot offline, if you will, about the nature of kind of what's happening in the Caribbean, which is one of your specialties. Yeah. And you also happen to have quite the Twitter following. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that being in my 20s, they call it digital native. You know, I grew up with social media. It was part of normal life for me. And I've managed to bring that into the work that I'm doing right now. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, I mean, I'm in my now late 30s. And one of the things that we could probably touch on here in the outset is this notion of personal branding. Obviously, there's a lot that goes into just managing a personal brand beyond your corporate brand. I find a lot of folks in the solar space are now kind of tinkering with well, how do I build a Twitter following or how do I get more connections on LinkedIn? Why does that even matter? Something that sticks out to me, and I think it'd be fun to just chat real quickly about on the notion of personal branding is you got on the Forbes 30 under 30 list. Is it true that you had never even heard of Forbes before you got on the list? Well, I had a vague idea of what it was. I think I'd heard the name, but I, I didn't really know anything about the list. The whole process of applying really. So you can either be nominated or self-nominate. I had a stack of applications of different grants and things that I was applying for. And that had somehow gone into that pile. So it took about five minutes. I wrote my name down, wrote a paragraph about myself completely forgot about it for six months. And then all of a sudden, January 1st, 2017, I got an email saying I was on the list. And even then, I hadn't quite grasped what that meant. But it's been a huge opportunity. And it's really helped me propel what I'm doing and get some more visibility for work in the solar industry. So James, you mentioned that it's given you more visibility. How do you quantify that? Are people reaching out more on LinkedIn? Where are you seeing the traction come from something like this, uh, what I'll call perhaps a marketing stunt that has yielded some results for you? 
Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that it's been the cure-all for everything. You know, I think people can perhaps overestimate the level of impact that getting on the list can have. But for me, what it's been really helpful is, particularly because the NGO work that I've been doing has been kind of out of left field, and we'll get more into that in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just been kind of a vote of confidence in my work. So when people check out my LinkedIn profile, you know, they can see that and they can see that I'm, I'm serious as opposed to just some mad guy with weird ideas. So it's been, a, it's been a vote of confidence, I think, that's helped me moving forward. Right. And, you know, sort of lasting on this personal branding, I think that it's brilliant the way that you as a digital native, as you put it, have navigated not just creating this sense of validation from third parties, it's become a part of how you validate the projects you're working on as well. You also have been up till recently a HuffPo contributor, correct? Yeah, I was writing some articles for HuffPost. You know, one of the things that we all can learn from, I'll say you digital natives, and for those of you who are listening that are in fact digital natives or consider yourselves quite fluent, then this doesn't particularly apply to you, but there are ways to strategically position yourself in the media, social media, et cetera, that do lend credibility to how you're perceived online, which is how most people are going to find you, right? So are there other ways that you have leaned in to this whole notion of personal branding and sort of third party validation or omnipresence in the web to give credence to your story? It's an ongoing process, building up my social media presence, sharing articles that are relevant. I'm just launching a a new website and program where I'm trying to start doing some more blogging. And I think it's really important that we in the solar industry communicate what we're doing to the rest of the world outside because, you know, everyone in the solar industry is really enthusiastic about what they do and gets it. But often we forget that we need to try and communicate that to people that aren't already aware of the potential of the technology. And so my actual angle into the industry was more broad sustainable development, particularly in uh, developing countries and how Mm. energy, water, food, climate change all link in with each other. Then after living in the Bay Area, getting involved with the solar industry... I have an idea of how that works. But I think for me, what's really important is communicating with different stakeholders. I'm not an engineer, but I like to think that I can communicate between politicians, engineers, journalists, and all these different stakeholders that sometimes don't always see eye to eye. Very well stated. You mentioned being in the Bay Area, which leads into one of the projects that has been a cornerstone for you, not just in college, but moving along in your career. Solar Head of State is a not-for-profit that focuses on integrating the sustainability and in particular solar into the long-term planning process at the head, at the capital of island nations in particular. Can we talk a bit about the founding of Solar Head of State, its origin, and how you have begun to expand the mission of Solar Heads of State over the last year or two? Solar Head Estate is really a saga that runs almost a decade now and started out in Sunjevity with a campaign that was run by the company asking President Obama to install solar panels on the White House. Just as that was about to happen, the Solyndra collapse happened and the White House obviously distanced itself completely from solar for a while. But they were approached by President Mohammed Nasheed from the Maldives, which is a small island country in the Indian Ocean, 300,000 people in the highest points, about two meters above sea level. So they really wanted to make a statement 
that said, you know, we are a small country, but we're committed to leading by example. And they had a mission at that time to be completely renewable energy run by 2025 or something. That was how we kind of started working in island countries. And this was all done by, originally Brian Summers was at Sungevity. And then I got involved as a volunteer. Brian really led the charge for a long time and then had his own company, moved on. And I ended up taking over a bit. And I had a personal interest in the Caribbean region. So we started working there and really saw this opportunity to promote this leadership on renewables that was happening in small island states that have expensive electricity and really wanted to prove that they could also have renewable energy powered economy. Initial idea was really to install solar on the most prominent building. You know, it only has to be a 5, 10, 15 kilowatt installation, but it's more about the symbolic value of having solar panels on a building like the White House and being able to leverage the impact from that to have a more widespread impact in the future. We essentially have this idea of leadership around solar, that it's really important to have early adopters in any new technology and that promoting solar through this idea of political leadership would help the industry expand. It's a small cost that can have a relatively large impact within a country. And we want to expand that idea in the coming year to include youth leaderships, women leadership, even corporate leadership, different angles of leadership in renewable energy as a way to help propel the industry and use this. We mentioned communications already. That's my strong point, I think. Use this as a way to communicate the benefits of renewables. As I understand, there's an acronym, Small Island Developing States, or SIDS, that's very common within the UN. Is that correct? Yeah, so Small Island Developing States, SIDS, make up almost a quarter of United Nations members. It's almost 50 countries spreading from Africa, the Indian Ocean, the Pacific, and of course, the Caribbean. Mm. Um, Many of those countries have populations under 500,000, some as little as 10,000 or 20,000 people. So it's a large number of jurisdictions, but a relatively small number of people. So it's interesting that Solar Heads of State began really with the Maldives and focused on the SIDS, these small island developing states, and has transitioned a lot of the focus of the Caribbean where you've got particular experience and expertise. Let's talk about the Caribbean. You've had a little success with getting solar into the Caribbean vis-a-vis the solar heads of state. But more than that, you've learned a lot about how the Caribbean functions. And as you mentioned, a lot of the development that you guys are working on now is expanding beyond just renewables and more about empowerment around sustainability and innovation in the Caribbean. Can we talk a little bit about that? So the Caribbean has some of the world's most expensive electricity prices, anything from 20 US cents a kilowatt hour up to 60 cents, which makes it a really interesting area to work in in renewables because often some of the arguments on cost competition in the United States, you don't have to face. Renewables make economic sense for a lot of the Caribbean islands. Combine that with the issues around climate change, both that these islands are facing, but also with the hurricanes that we saw last year, there's a big incentive to introduce renewable energies. I think that resiliency aspect is something that is going to really grow. And the attention that was brought in Puerto Rico and other islands to the use of renewables has been exciting. Obviously, Tesla have made a big fanfare about what they want to do in Puerto Rico. But there's lots of other organizations in the Virgin Islands, in Dominica, that are now working out how they can use solar energy to improve response if further natural disasters. So for example, in Dominica, 
That's not the Dominican Republic. There's a small island of Dominica with 100,000 people that was really, really badly hit by one of the hurricanes that we didn't really hear about in the United States because all the attention was on Puerto Rico. One of the issues there was that diesel generators were distributed to the general population after the hurricane, but there was no way of getting diesel in. So solar has a huge benefit in terms of this response. And actually, more people died in Dominica due to lack of medical treatment, including things like dialysis, because there wasn't power, than actually died when the hurricane hit. In terms of improving response and improving our ability, there's a whole area that renewables can really provide there. And I think that is a really important argument for making those investments in the region. The other interesting thing is people assume that renewables and particularly solar will not survive any impact from hurricanes. But in most cases, solar panels prove to be really resilient to the impacts. Obviously, if the eye of the hurricane hits an island, not much is going to survive. But for those islands that weren't directly hit, solar panels generally survived and were up and functioning the next day after the hurricane. So broadly speaking, how much is the penetration of renewables and solar in particular achieved in the Caribbean islands at large? It varies so much. I mean, the Caribbean is almost 30 different jurisdictions, including various territories of the US, France, uh, Netherlands, and, and Britain. So it varies a lot between countries and between territories. I'd say Aruba is one of the bright sparks that has really got a lot of attention. They have a wind farm, they have a lot of solar, and then you can go the opposite end of the spectrum to somewhere like Guyana that has almost no solar energy. And the, the entire region has traditionally relied on diesel generation, which is part of the cost element. That is really changing now. I think another element that's really changing is the fact that they've traditionally relied on Venezuela for the importation of fuel. Right. So now people are very worried about energy security. And again, renewable energy can provide this energy security, which relying on Venezuela doesn't. So what I'm saying is it varies a lot. I don't have necessarily statistics in front of me for different countries. There's definitely a long way to go, but I think there's ambitious goals. And over the next five years, you'll see a big transition. The worry is when this solar saturation will meet. So people are looking at how batteries can play a part into that, how gas is becoming a, a big conversation. There's a lot of controversy right. over whether gas should be used or not as a fuel. And people are looking to what happened in Hawaii when solar almost reached its maximum level and they had to have um, a hiatus on new installations because I think that's going right. to be the case. I just one other thing I wanted to add was the utility situation down in the Caribbean. You have, in general, very small utilities that rely on a limited number of customers. And so often that is the barrier that utilities don't want to see a change in their business model because they're making a killing already. And every time someone installs distributed generation solar on their own roof, it takes away one of their customers. So there's this battle happening between the governments, the general population, and the utilities, which will be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah. I mean, at a macro level, if I am ignorant to the Caribbean market and I'm trying to think about going into it, look, I'd look at this and say, God, 40 cents per kilo at our average. It could be so hard about this. We're in a country here where we have a lot of diversity. And I'm thinking from U.S. perspective, a lot of developers might look at the Caribbean and say, this is, you know, this is a next door neighbor, just like Mexico. But there's a lot of English speaking countries. We have a country with diverse states. I'm now operating in 25 of those states. Like, how hard could it be to just bolt on the Caribbean? You and I have both seen this sort of braggadocia, if you will, inter of folks entering into the Caribbean. What do you see as the significant barriers that exist that inform developers' sense of hubris and confidence in the opposite direction, perhaps that they would need to study up a bit more before going into the Caribbean? Yeah, I mean, the number one thing is just the market size. You know, entering a new market has a big expense and you can go into Mexico with 
what, 120 million people, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, Or you can go into Antigua with 80,000 people. The number of projects you have is just limited. But the issue in the Caribbean is that the rules and regulations are so balkanized. Antigua, St. Lucia, Dominica, all these islands are next to each other, but they have completely different systems, completely different stakeholders. And so you have to essentially go through that process of entering a new market every time. And that is just so costly that even with these high electricity costs, I think for a lot of US developers, they underestimate the difficulties in that. I think also it really relies on local knowledge and, and, and knowing the right people on the ground. And so a lot of developers try and go in without the right local partners. But mm. if they're going to go into these markets, they really need someone on the ground who can guide them through local bureaucracy, knows intimately the different stakeholders and how they all relate to each other. There is a lot of money from organizations like IRENA, the International Renewable Energy Association, UNDP. They're putting money into different projects now and these different multilateral organizations. So there's a lot of these, this government money out there that might not be available in other countries, but also the bureaucracy around that can be really challenging. So I think there's this huge potential. Having scalable projects and you know, there's a lot of developers out there that just aren't interested in the scale of projects we're looking at. Maybe right. five, five megawatts is just not interesting. And you're lucky if you can get a five megawatt project in some places. Very true, very true. So where are the opportunities in the Caribbean right now as you see it? We'll be focused on solar for the answer. I might say as a component to that, along with where are the opportunities, what's the avatar look like if I'm going into the Caribbean looking for a good local partner in quotations? Each island has a couple of different, you know, local engineers or local people who are looking into this industry, but often for their businesses, they'll have a wide range of products that they offer. So they won't necessarily be solar specialists like you might find in the US. They'll have to cover a wide range of products and doing general electrician work just to have enough business. So finding someone like that who's not necessarily a solar specialist, but has the basic skills that then can be backed up by someone who's very skilled in that area is important. And I think the scale of projects that really make sense are under one megawatt. So those islands are allowing distributed generation. Looking at a 300 kilowatt project that might be for a factory or might be for for hotels, there's a lot of potential there. Surprisingly, the hotel industry still hasn't latched onto solar. And that's puzzling a lot of people because it absolutely makes sense for those. Um, And I think they're slowly waking up And there'll be potential there. But I think the people that are going to make money and operate most successfully in the region are going to be local specialists that have an intimate knowledge of the differences in the local culture and have those local partners that they can successfully work with. Yeah, one of the things I'll tag onto there is I've found very difficult to find folks with portable skills island to island, meaning... Mm -hmm. A lot of developers will go down and they'll probably have through a connection, someone they know in the US Virgin Islands or Puerto Rico who is in the Caribbean and who does know what they're doing. And they'll think, oh, well, I'll go with said partner over to Aruba or over to Jamaica. And it just doesn't work that way. So would you agree, therefore, that a developer wanting to go in the Caribbean needs to have a regional specialist who is capable of helping them find good local partners? Or is this something that, you know, it's, it's just a question of going island to island and finding the person that's a good fit for you. If I'm trying to think about this as a strategy, how would you advise me to go and you know, build my approach to the Caribbean? I mean, one very successful company in the region has been Solar Island Energy. They're actually based in Missouri, but they have managed to operate really well because they have a network of local specialists on each island. And they recognize that bringing someone from the British Virgin Islands down to St. Lucia is not going to be helpful. You need people 
on each island in each country almost to be able to yeah. operate successfully. Yeah. There are a lot of tenders going out for different projects and the funding is there, but being able to successfully apply for those tenders again, requires this, these local partners. So I think that has been, they, they've managed to create a model that works really well and yeah. have specialized in these kind of smaller scale in, in commercial projects, which there's yeah. a lot of fun for. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And we'll shout out here our good friend, Mark Lapata as well. It wasn't planned, but Mark has built a remarkable network there. As you said, from Missouri, of all places, if you are looking for a good partner as a developer, regardless of where you're coming, I can highly recommend. I've worked with Mark and he really understands what's going on down there. He's not alone, but you're right. They are a good template of how to build a sustainable business that can make an impact. And he's really focused on the DG market, which is where I think the most opportunity is. Hey, James, we have talked a bit privately and I'd love to get your perspective here on Suncast around the intersection of these global climate conferences, the macro topic of renewables. I think that it's not something that folks necessarily connect the dots around. You've been involved in a couple of the COP conferences. Most recently, you led a delegation of the Seychelles to the conference. Well, I didn't, I didn't lead it. I was the member of. Ah, you were a member of it. Okay, perfect. Yeah, so I you didn't lead the delegation. Were, got it. So you were a part of the delegation of the Seychelles to the most recent COP23. Can you talk a bit about the overlap of these conferences and how the voting works, why that's important, why that matters? And how it ultimately leads to this vested interest in climate change, in particular with the SIDS that we were discussing? So for the island countries, there's a big incentive at these COPs because there's a lot of decisions being made on funding. And so there's the Green Climate Fund, for example, which has been billions of dollars have been put in by developed countries to go towards adaptation. Now, climate adaptation is very broad in terms of what counts for it. And so lots of projects from water, energy, et cetera, are eligible for funding. And for SIDS countries, there's been a real barrier in accessing that funding because the bureaucracy around it is so intense that they just haven't got the manpower to be able to meet all those regulations. So the countries that have been successful have been the larger developing countries in Africa, Nigeria, for example. So all the decisions are made for that. That will be relevant to the industry because when these mechanisms are improved and more funding becomes available, there's going to be a lot of that money being pumped into renewable energy and other sustainable development projects in the Caribbean, the Pacific, and other places. Last year, the COP23 was actually hosted by Fiji, so it had a particular SIDS emphasis. It was the first time that a SIDS country had been involved in running the conference. And obviously, for these island countries, there is huge potential risks from climate change, not just sea level rise for low-lying countries, but hurricanes, as we saw last year, being stronger and more frequent in the Caribbean, droughts changes to what diseases might be present. There's a whole myriad of issues. And these are really compounded in island countries. So they have a very strong incentive to be heard and campaign at climate conferences. Now, as I mentioned before, a quarter of UN members are small island developing states, despite the fact that they only make up a couple of percent of global population. So you right. have a lot of very small countries. The United Nations has a one state, one vote rule. So Tuvalu in the Pacific, with 10,000 people, has the same vote as China. And that creates wow. a really interesting situation where 
they have a strong lobby and a strong ability to influence the direction. Obviously, there are still huge strategic barriers for them to, to make that impact in terms of their economic leverage, etc. But they do have a platform to have their voices heard. And I think that one element that is now becoming very important is this leadership by example. So a lot of, the, a lot of these small island states want to create very carbon neutral economies or very green example economies because then they can go to these conferences and say, hey, if we can do it, you can too. And that also fits in well with a number of other things in terms of branding for tourism. Who doesn't want to go to a green country that is really pushing its green credentials? And then also the high cost that we mentioned before. So all these things fit together to mean that island states are really pushing to be champions of renewable energy. And I think there's going to be some really innovative projects, particularly around smart grids and microgrids coming out of island countries in the future. You know, bringing it full circle, you'd mentioned that solar heads of state actually started with the Maldives, you know, a country of 300,000 people that, as you mentioned, is barely two meters above at its highest point above sea level. Maldives and other countries currently are making contingency plans to, <laughs> to mitigate the dangers posed by climate change, not, not the least of which is uh, sea level rise. Who do you see that is providing that leadership in the Caribbean right now? So it's interesting, actually, traditionally, the voice of the small island developing states at the United Nations has been from the Pacific. You see these countries that are really low lying and particularly vulnerable of disappearing entirely are mostly in the Pacific Islands. So over the last decade uh, or even two decades, the Pacific Islands have had this really strong voice at the United Nations and lobbying against uh, greenhouse gas emissions. The Caribbean has often been a bit quieter on that issue, but I think last year's hurricanes have really changed that. And I think we're going to see even more leadership from the region and even more calls to cut emissions. Now, that being said, there are several projects for oil drilling and oil and gas drilling in certain Caribbean countries. And so there's a whole variation across the region. One country that has been particularly vocal is interesting because it's actually a territory of Holland, but Aruba, as I mentioned before, have Mm. been very good at branding themselves. Now, there are other countries that have been just as successful as Aruba in terms of their renewable energy, but Aruba has made a really good PR exercise where they have a big green Aruba conference every year. They are leading all these press releases and their political leaders have really been outspoken on what they're doing there. And that's been a good effort for them to also attract industry and and attention uh, more broadly for their economy. Jamaica is now doing a lot. The Jamaican prime minister has really started to be very outspoken about how much solar he wants to put onto the grid. And Jamaica is interesting because it's almost 4 million people. It represents a big market, potentially. A lot more development can be happening. They've also started looking at solar lanterns for a lot of the poorer rural areas um, because they had problems with uh, fires, for example, from people using paraffin lamps. But obviously, that's also happening on the grid. And I think distributed generation is going to be huge there. At the other end of the spectrum, you have somewhere like Trinidad. Trinidad and Tobago is the oil and gas powerhouse of the region. They have the cheapest electricity in the world, about three cents per kilowatt hour. But they are suddenly realizing that they're starting to run out of oil and gas. They can't have a sustainable economy run on this heavily subsidized electricity cost. And over the next 10 years, they're going to have to transition completely away from their traditional model. So 
countries like Trinidad and Tobago, they're taking a little bit of time to wake up, but potentially there could be a huge revolution there in their economy. And I know a lot of people on the ground there that are trying to lead that. So there's this whole spectrum of people. And then Guyana is another country that have just hit some of the world's biggest oil reserves per capita offshore. 800,000 people with this huge oil supply that ExxonMobil are going in and drilling. And so they've kind of turned their backs on renewables potentially. But um, so, so, so it's difficult to make any generalizations about the region. Yeah, I think that actually is a very good summary of the whole conversation around the Caribbean. It's difficult to make a generalization around the region. You bring it full circle with the climate conferences. There are a lot of opportunities for not just business development, but influence from developed nations to help things go in the right direction and potential pitfalls where countries like Guyana are stumbling across fossil fuel resources akin to the Middle East. (laughs) We could see it go one way or the other. I think it's all very interesting. And I think where your position and your communication strategy and skill, I look forward to being able to tune in further as we explore what's happening in this region. Hey, to that end, you know, one of the things that you've recently done that I'm a follower of, and I think others probably should be as well, is around island innovation and sort of helping keep people abreast of what's happening down in the Caribbean. Want to speak a little bit about that before we go? Yeah. So my interest more broadly beyond renewables is how we can really change the discourse around innovation and bring innovation, particularly around sustainability, to peripheral areas. So it's not just focused on these big hubs and cities. So I've started this newsletter, which is really just to highlight innovative projects coming out of island regions, rural regions, and remote areas, and really put the spotlight on how we can learn from those areas. And it's not just, everything isn't coming out of Silicon Valley. So I will put, I'll I'll send you the link and you can add that into the uh, description. And hopefully that will be some interesting information for your listeners. There'll be a lot of energy stuff coming out of that, but we'll be looking at the Caribbean and other regions. Very cool. So make sure you check the blog post and then the show notes will include that newsletter link so that you can subscribe and keep abreast of everything that James is bringing into the world. Hey, James, along that line, how else can people find you? LinkedIn, Twitter, we mentioned that you've got quite a following. Here's an opportunity for folks to really reach out and create a communication or conversation with you. Yeah, so feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm the only James Ellsmore on there with the spelling, so it's easy to find me. And likewise, on Twitter, J. Ellsmore, you can follow me there. And again, just make sure you spell my last name right because people know me. <laughs> yeah, and as before, it's linked to in the show notes and over on the blog. So make sure you check that out and stay tuned for the online and ongoing conversation with James, Solar Heads of State, and the new Island Innovation Initiative that he is launching. James, a great chance to have you, an expert on the Caribbean region, on the show. Really appreciate your insight and uh, look forward to keeping this conversation going. Thanks so much for having me, Nico. That's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warriors, and you're now well-armed for battle. Hopefully, you'll take away some great tools for your own success. I'd love it if you'd share what you learned or share the episode over on LinkedIn. Let me know what other tools you need. If you want to sharpen the axe a little bit more, I've shared some of the resources we discussed in today's conversation over at mysuncast.com. Just click on the latest episode link in the title bar. Perhaps the best tool in your arsenal might be subscribing to the mailing list while you're there so that you'll get an email from yours truly when new content is available. Have a suggestion for someone you think should join the conversation? Email me, nico at mysuncast.com or shoot me a message on LinkedIn. 
Hey, that's it. Thanks for being here. Until next time, stay informed, my friend, and stay tuned.